our story starts today uh, in a busy, uh, a busy city. It's a large city. It's a cosmopolitan city. And uh, uh, the tension has been mounting. Um, when they woke up this morning, there was nothing to suggest that this day would be different than any other day. But by the end of the day, um, the images of graphic violence are going to be emblazoned on their minds in a way that they'll never be able to forget. Looking back on this day, um, they will all say that, yes, we sense the tensions rising in the city, but we never saw it coming, or at least not like this at this time. It was as if this day there was a spark that caught the wind and was suddenly flamed, uh, fanned to flame through the winds of anger and hatred and fear and violence. And like a forest fire, a wildfire that we have here in Southern California, that single spark was suddenly blown into a flame that threatened to burn down all of their lives, and none of their, their lives would ever be the same again. Well, today, we are uh, wrapping up this series that we've been in for the last nine weeks, week 10. It's called Loving People, Doing Relationships a Whole New Way. And if you're uh, brand new today, too bad, you missed it. Uh, just, no, just, just kidding. Uh, if you're new, we want to welcome you. And they're all on YouTube. You can catch up. Uh, we want to welcome you. This is a series about relationships. And what we've learned in this series, and every week I start from the top, just a brief recap for those of you who are new. What we've learned is that as followers of Jesus, that when a man or a woman comes to Jesus, Jesus is very clear that he has two top priorities for our life. And the first is that we would love God with everything we have, all our heart, all our soul, all our strength. He would be our our top passion, our, our highest priority, our first love. Um, and, our, and that out of that top priority flows a second priority, that we would love others as he has loved us, or love others as we love ourselves. And so what we've seen, though, is that even as followers of Jesus, after we come to Jesus, we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, this new love for, we have a new love for God, a new love for people, that often when it comes to living out this life of love in real relationships, we're not always sure how to do that. So we often fall back on old patterns, habits, uh, models that we've seen that frankly are often uh, highly dysfunctional or really damaging, destructive. And so what we're doing in this series is going back to the Word to say, what does the Word say about what does it look like to live out a life of love? And today we come to uh, the final message of this series, which I'm calling the final challenge. And what we're going to see today is the final challenge that Jesus is going to give us is the challenge to learn how to love our enemies. And so I want to start today with a very famous passage of Jesus, teaches of Jesus, from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. And as we've done all through this series, I put it there on your note sheet. Uh, next week, you're going to start needing to bring your Bibles back to church. Um, um, and so the passage is from Matthew chapter 5. Now, for those of you who might be newer at this, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, is what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And it's the most famous, probably the most famous speech in world history. Um, and in this passage, Jesus lays out his vision, um, and he introduces us to his movement, 
that he calls the kingdom of God. And so he, he kind of he lays out, this is what it means to be my follower. This is what it means to be part of my movement. And so at the end of chapter 5, he enters into this first chapter with his very famous teaching. And follow along there in your note sheet. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. So this was the common religious teaching of the day uh, based on the Old Testament, but they had misinterpreted it. We won't go into all that. Uh, it did say love your enemy and love your neighbor. It didn't say hate your enemy. But this is how they'd interpret it. He said, so you've heard it said. This is kind of the word on the street. You go to synagogue, this is what you're going to hear. He says, but I tell you to what? Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, we need to go back in time and realize how radical this was. We get way too familiar with this. But remember that Israel had been invaded by Rome about 100 years before this. So their greatest enemy, when they're listening to this, is Rome. They are living uh, under oppression. It would be like, like in World War II, we lost the war. And, uh, and so we were invaded, say, by Germany and Japan, and we were living under an occupied territory. In fact, that'd be like an awesome concept for a show. Like maybe you call it Man in High Castle, Castle or something like that. But... Imagine if that was the case, how you would feel about these Japanese or German overlords who had come in and ravaged your country and reduced you, in a sense, almost to a role of servants or slaves. And so when Jesus says, love your enemies, this wasn't something that everyone said, hey, that sounds good. Let's make a plaque, put it on the wall. Uh, it was radical teaching. And he said, but here's the reason why, that you may be what? Children of your Father in heaven. And he said, why? Because he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. And he sends his reign <coughs> on the righteous and the unrighteous. So if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? What's the big deal? That's kind of what everyone does. Even criminals love Criminals, right? The Sopranos. <laughs> so he said, are, are not even the tax collectors, which are kind of the lowest of the low, the spiritual barrel, are not the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, not just saying like, hey, how you doing, but like shalom, you know, wishing them, uh, wishing them well. If you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans. They don't even know God do that. So be What? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And so the, 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 the idea, uh, this Greek word for perfect, it doesn't mean just to like keep all the rules, but it has a sense of maturity, right? It has a sense, it's the Greek word telios, from where we get our, our word telos, the end point, right? That, that God's vision is we'd grow up and become like our Father, right? So this is a very famous passage, and what I want to do today is I want to, from this passage, I want to highlight one big picture principle that kind of uh, speaks to what we're, our topic of the day, but also kind of summarizes this whole series. And then also then come back after introduces one big picture principle and talk about four steps we need to make to, to, make the, kind of to, to live out that principle, kind of the, uh, the principle and, and the, you know, how, the program, how we would actually do that. And so there in your note sheet, you have a section it's called 
love the ultimate vision. So I want to give, give, you, the, give you the principle, and then we're going to unpack it. Then we're going to come back and start to get real practical at how we live it out. So the principle is very simple. In fact, it's not really new. It's kind of a new, uh, kind of new angle on it today, but it's one we've talked about often in this series. And it goes like this, that Jesus has a vision. As you're reading through the Sermon on the Mount, uh, as he comes to this point in the sermon, uh, he's been building up to this. He's given us five previous examples of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, what it means to be part of his kingdom, and they're leading up to this crescendo of this is what it looks like. My vision for your life is to be like your father in the heavens, and here's what that looks like. It looks like you would love not just your friends, but love your enemies. And so this is what we've seen throughout this series, hasn't it? We've seen this over and over. A lot of you will remember uh, Ephesians chapter 4 in your study, uh, Colossians 3, where Paul says that God's vision for our life is to be renewed in the image of our creator. Remember, we talked in week 3 about our character and that if we aren't transformed in our character, in our core character, to be like our creator, we won't have the capacity to love others well. And so his vision, so this is what Jesus is going back to today. He says, look there in your note sheet, the second verse down. He says, I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be what? Children of your Father in heaven. And then he says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the vision. So what I want you to catch is that when Jesus came, his vision for our life, as we've said many times in this series, is much bigger than we would come to Jesus, be forgiven for his sins, and go to heaven when we die. His vision is that we be transformed by the power of his spirit, and we would become the people we are created to be, and that's people like our Father. There in your note sheet, Jesus, in another context, we've talked about this verse uh, a long time ago, so you probably forgot. But uh, Luke chapter 6 says, Jesus says, the student, and in the Greek that word is disciple, the disciple is not above the teacher. Uh, the disciple is not better, faster, uh, smarter than the teacher, the rabbi. But everyone who is fully trained, in the Greek healed, restored, will be what? Like the teacher. So this is the vision. When Jesus came, he came not just to forgive our sins, he came to transform our lives so that we could be changed at a core level to become like our creator, that we could live out this life of love. And what Jesus says today is not just love for our friends, but love even for our enemies. Now, of course, this goes, this vision goes to the heart of the gospel, doesn't it? Because this is a story of the Bible, the story of this incredible creator right, who's brilliant and uh, powerful and creative and loves beauty and is uh, completely good, who creates this incredible universe. And when the creation rebels against the creator, commits high treason, instead of writing us off, the creator becomes a part of the creation, takes on the form of a slave, like we learned in the last series, Philippians 2, and he humbles himself even to the point of death on a Roman cross to rescue his, catch, enemies. In fact, in Romans chapter 5, this is how Paul puts it there in your note sheet. God demonstrates his own love for us that while we were still sinners, and we'll come back to that word, he's going to define what sinners means in a second. 
while we were still sinners. And we we weren't seeking him. We weren't pursuing him. We were rebels. That while we were sinners, Christ died for us. For if while we were his enemies, there's the word. That's what he means by sinners. Or enemies were reconciled through the death of his son. You see, so, so this is who God is, and therefore this is his vision for our life, that we would be transformed um, by the work of the Holy Spirit, that we would love uh, even our enemies. And of course, now Jesus doesn't just teach this, he models it, doesn't he? And so we saw it this week in Luke 23, where Jesus is being executed. He's been up all night. He's been beaten. He's been humiliated, probably naked. Uh, He's been tortured. He's now nailed and hanging on a Roman cross and being mocked. And he responds to that with what? With love. In fact, he prays for his enemies. There in Luke 23, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing, all right? So, so what I want you to catch is that Jesus didn't come to die for his enemies or to love his enemies so we don't have to. Are you with me? This is how we look at it. I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. Jesus came to die for my sins. I hate my enemies. That's why Jesus died for me. Like, he didn't come to die for me so I don't have to become like him. He came to die for me so I can be recreated to have the capacity to be like him. This is his vision for our lives. So the question is, how do we move from vision to reality? How do we become a people that are like the pagans, like tax collectors, loving our own, hating our enemies, how do we move from that kind of person to a person who's like Jesus? And so Jesus is going to give us today four steps. Four steps. I'll get that down for tomorrow. Uh, yeah. I lose track of my body up here sometimes. Um, four steps of, of how we take this journey to meet this final challenge. And let me just say this. Before we launch in, I've told you before throughout this series, when it comes to loving people, I consider myself struggling in the first grade, all right? So my goal in life is to get to the second grade and graduate. So it's not like I have this all wired, but I think Jesus has marked the path for us. This is how we go from who we were to who you were created to be. So there in your note sheet, you have a section called Love, Embracing the Challenge. So first step, how do we we transform? How does the vision go to reality? Number one, we bow the knee. We bow the knee. Now, what do you mean? We say, what do you mean by bowing the knee? Well, as followers of Jesus, we have to come under the leadership of King Jesus and bow the knee to our king and accept his call and his standard for our lives. We will never... We will never learn how to love our enemies when we look at that command as the ideal and not the real. It's so interesting. I mentioned this before, but as you study chapter 5, and you go back to our series, Unfiltered, you may remember this, that, that in chapter 5, Jesus is contrasting religious righteousness of the leaders with real righteousness of his kingdom. And he gives us six Six examples, I'm working on this, 
Uh, he gives us six examples of what the difference between religious righteousness and real righteousness. And, and this is the final example, this one in chapter 5, at the end of chapter 5, of loving our enemies. And what I want you to catch is this is super clear. This is not a suggestion. This is a command. When Jesus said, you've heard it said, but I say, he's not saying, here's my suggestion. This is not a suggestion. This is our standard. And this is where it starts. We will never be transformed and learn to live a life of love until we accept Jesus' teaching as our standard, not a suggestion. And we come under his leadership as our king. And we understand that according to Jesus' living life at any lower level, we are acting like a pagan or a tax collector who's not even a part of the kingdom. It's so important that we remember how Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount. You may remember when we taught on this uh, unfiltered that was Jesus was teaching, there was two groups there. There was disciples who had followed him, and there was the crowd. And his teaching was aimed at his disciples. You knew the crowd was there, and they're listening in, and they're trying to decide whether they want to step out of the crowd and into the kingdom. But he's addressing it to his disciples, this is what it looks like to follow me. And when he gets done with his teaching, at, at the end of chapter 7, after the three chapters, remember it's kind of a highlight reel, at the end of chapter 7, Jesus gives one final analogy, one final illustration. And this is how he wraps up the whole teaching. And he says, once upon a time, there were two men. They both needed a new home for their family. And they both built a beautiful home. One man was a wise man and one man was a fool. He says, and the difference between the two is that the wise man built his house upon bedrock, so when the streams came, the rivers, the, the storm came, water couldn't get underneath the house, and it stood the test. The other man was a fool because he built it in a wadi, and when the, when the rains came and the streams came, they came underneath the house, they washed away the sand, he built it on sand, and the whole house collapsed. He lost everything. And so the question is, what's the point? And Jesus says, here's the point. The foolish man is the person who listens to what I've just told you in this message and likes it, but doesn't follow it. And the wise man is the one who listens, likes it, and follows it. And so as we start this journey, what I want you to catch is we will never grow in love we will never be transformed. We will never become like our king until we bow our knee to the king and accept his standard as our standard. That this is not optional. This is a command. And if we don't embrace it, we are acting like the fool. Our house may look, look good on the outside, but it's not the real deal. Number two. The second step we need to take is confess our failure. Now you say, well, what do you mean, what failure? Well, what I'm saying is that once we've established that this standard of loving our enemies is not just an ideal, it's to be the real. 
Once we've embraced that standard, then when we fall short of that standard, which will be often, we need to embrace reality and stop defending our hatred and start confessing our sin. That as long as we're defending our hatred, love your neighbor, hate your enemy, as long as we're defending our hatred for our enemy, we will never be transformed. So we saw this earlier in the series. In week two, we talked about authenticity. We saw that, that the first step to growth in any area of our life is radical authenticity. Remember we talked about this. If you have an anger problem, the first step to getting over that problem is admitting you have an anger problem. As long as you say, it's not me, it's her, she just pushes my buttons, it will never get better. In fact, it'll probably get worse. As long as we say, hey, our marriage isn't that bad, it will never get better. If you're in a bad marriage, the first step to making a good marriage is to admit, we've got a bad marriage. And this is true in the terms, in the terms of loving your enemies, too. As long as we're defending our hatred of our enemies, hey, well, I'm only human. Well, how, I don't think God could expect me to love them after what they did to me. As long as we're defending our hatred, we will never be able to grow in love. So if we want to grow in love and be transformed, become the people we're created to be, we have to first come under the leadership of King Jesus, embrace the standard. It's not a suggestion, it's a standard. And secondly, when we fall short, we have to own that and not defend it, but confess it. Now, a couple weeks ago, we talked about this on the, on the week about forgiveness. And I said, I'm going to do a quick sidebar here. I'm going to come back to it in two weeks. Well, that was, we're back, two weeks. Remember in that message, if you were here, we talked about three types of sin, three categories of sin. We talked about sins of commission. When I do something wrong that I shouldn't do, it violates the law of love. There's sins of omission, things I should do that I'm not doing. And then we talked about sins of reaction. Do you remember that? So the illustration I use, if you remember, is it? Hey, someone's driving crazy on the freeway. They're cutting in and out. They're almost causing all these accidents. That's a sin of commission, right? Um, you're in the fast lane going 55. Sin of omission. <laughs> you are not doing what you should be doing. And then there's sins of reaction. And the sins of reaction is when that person going 55 or the person cutting in and out, it makes you so mad. So you start tailgating, you start honking, you start waving with them with a single finger. <laughs> you start screaming. Their sin of action has caused a sin of reaction. And the point is, as long as we defend our hatred and our right to our hatred, we will never grow in loving our enemies. There in your note sheet, St. Augustine, famous early church father, I love this. He said, if you're suffering from a bad man's injustice, forgive him, lest there be two bad men. All right, number three. Number three, the third step is to ask for help. 
Right, so first step, we're going to come under the leadership of King Jesus. You're my king. This is your command. Love your enemies. That seems crazy. That seems impossible. That seems hard. But you are my king. And I bow the knee to your leadership. And I take this as my marching orders. I may not know how to do this. I might feel like I can't do this. But I accept that as the standard. And I stop defending my hatred. And once we've done that, we're ready for step three, where we ask for help. The reality is, you know this, I know this. Is this something we can do on our own, to love our enemies? No, this sounds really good until you have an enemy. And then it suddenly seems ridiculous and impossible. And so if we're going to learn to love our enemies, this is going to require the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit changing us from the inside out. And the good news is, is that when we come to Jesus, we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, that Jesus comes to live in us, and he can teach us how to tap into his power and to do through him what we could never do on our own. That now that we have the power of the Holy Spirit, as we learned back in week three on character, we have the power to put off the old, and to put on the new as we listen and follow the Holy Spirit. Uh, a great, great example. It's a famous story. Maybe some of you have heard of it. But in the last century, there was a very famous Christ follower named Corey Tin Boom. How many of you have heard of Corey Tin Boom? Yeah, a lot of you have, yeah. And so Corey grew up in a Christian family in, uh, in Amsterdam. And uh, during World War, World War uh, II, uh, her family took in Jews to hide them from uh, Hitler to save their lives. A very, very risky thing to do, but they, they love God and they love people, and this is what you do, right? And so they, they took them and they hid them, but eventually they were discovered, and so they too were sent to a concentration camp. And so she was sent, Corey was sent with her sister Betsy to an all-women's camp called Ravensbrück. You've probably heard of that. Um, and so it was in northern Germany. And, of course, as you, as you know, I mean, as you can imagine, it was just brutal. The whole experience was brutal. In fact, it was so brutal that her sister didn't survive. She, she died there. But Corey did survive. And after the war, uh, she went back home. And a couple years later, in, in 1947, a couple years later, she felt God was calling her back to uh, Germany to share the love and the forgiveness of Jesus in this war-torn land. And so she goes back to Germany, and one night she's speaking about the love of Jesus, about the forgiveness of Jesus. It doesn't matter what you've done or where you've been. He can forgive you. In fact, she said he can take your sins and throw them to the bottom of the sea. And when she gets done speaking, she looks up, and she sees a man coming from the back of the room in a heavy overcoat, and as he's about halfway to her, she recognizes him, that he's one of the guards the Nazi guards from Ravensburg. And as she recognizes him, she freezes. And as he finally reaches her, he says, Fraulein, thank you so much for that message. He said, I, I, uh, I was a guard at Ravensbrück. Of course, he didn't recognize her, but she recognized him. He said, I was a guard there but I've come to Jesus Christ and he's forgiven me of my sins 
but I'd like to ask you too, would you forgive me for what I did? As she said at that moment, it was like time stood still. And the room changed. And all of a sudden, she was standing back in Ravensbrook. And she was walking through a large cement floor room, cold room with harsh white lights. She was in a line of women. And they were all forced to strip naked, to put their, put their shoes in a pile, to put their dresses in a pile, and to walk by the leering guards. And she's standing there, and she sees this man in front of her there with his blue Nazi uniform, with his visored cap with skull and crossbones, with his leather riding whip at his side. She sees her sister, Betsy, in front of her, so, so emaciated from the lack of food that she can see every rib on her naked body. Her skin is so thin, it's like parchment. And it all comes back to her in that flash. And this man is asking her to forgive him for being one of the guards that caused her sister to die. And in that moment, she said it was the hardest thing she'd ever been asked to do. But the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount came back. In the Lord's Prayer, if you don't forgive men their sins, I will not forgive you. And in that moment of desperation, she cried out for help. She's inside. She just said, Jesus, help me. She said, I can extend my hand, but you'll have to do the rest. And she said as she reached out her hand and took the hand of this guard, she said it was like a, like a bolt of electricity hit her. It started at her shoulder and went down to her, her wrist and to her hand. And she said it was like her whole body was just enveloped in warmth. She said she had never experienced the love of God like that. And in that moment, she stood there holding this man's hand for the longest time and said, I do forgive you my brother, with all my heart. An extreme example? Yes. But it illustrates the principle that we are not on our own in this. This is not about you and I, through our willpower, doing something superhuman. This is about you and I coming under the leadership. And here's what happens. When we bow the knee, we accept the call. We confess our sin. We put ourselves in a place where we can legitimately ask for help. And help will come. And this leads to number four. Number four is, as you might expect, as we wrap up this series, listen and follow. Listen and follow, but in a specific way of taking the high road. We talk a lot here at Rocky Peak about 
listen and follow. And I hope it never becomes an empty slogan. That for us, what we mean when we say listen and follow is it mean that as followers of Jesus, we listen to our king. We, we read his word. We listen for his voice in the word of God. We listen for his voice through the Holy Spirit. And when God speaks, even if it's hard, we don't just listen and like, we listen and follow. And Jesus says when it comes to loving our enemies, what it looks like to follow is to take, always take the high road. You know, a few years ago, Michelle Obama, when I believe her husband was still president, but Michelle Obama gave a very famous speech. And in this speech, she coined a phrase, or at least made it popular, that went viral. And I'm sure many will remember it. She said, when they go low, we go high. I don't know how you feel about Michelle or her politics, not the point. The point is, that's exactly what Jesus is telling us. It's exactly what it means to listen and follow King Jesus. It means when they go low, we go high. We don't allow our enemies to dictate our behavior. That is old school. That's how it used to be. That's how pagans act. That's how tax collectors act. It's not how Jesus followers act. When they go low, we go high. And Jesus gives us some specific examples in the Sermon on the Mount and in a similar passage in Luke 6 of what he means by this. Today we, we saw this in Matthew 5, He said, but I tell you, love your enemies and what? Pray. Pray. When they go low, we go high. How do we go high? It starts with prayer. We talked about that a couple weeks ago on forgiveness. I spent quite a bit of time with it. I'm not going to develop that again now. But I love what Dietrich Bonhoeffer, another amazing believer who gave his life for King Jesus in World War II when he resisted Hitler and was executed as part of a plot to take him down. But what he says, this is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says. He says, through the medium of prayer, we go to our enemy and we stand by his side and we plead for him to God. Jesus does not promise that when we bless our enemies and do good to them, they will not despitefully use and persecute us. They certainly will. But not even that hurt can overcome us so long as we pray for them. We are doing vicariously for them what they cannot do for themselves. This is what a follower of Jesus does. When they go low, we go high. We stand by their side in prayer and we take them to the Father and we ask him to do for them what they are incapable of asking God to do for themselves. It starts with prayer, but it goes to action. Luke chapter six, very similar passage as the Sermon on the Mount. To those who are listening, I say, love your enemies and do what? Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. I love how the Apostle Paul puts it there on your note sheet. We're going to skip over C.S. Lewis. You can read it later. Romans 12, 
puts it like this, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You think how Jesus modeled this? They could beat him, they could mock him, they could torture him, and they could crucify him, but they couldn't stop him from seeking their best. They couldn't stop his love. And brothers and sisters, I think this final challenge as we wrap up this series is so important for us at this point in history of our nation. If you haven't noticed, the price of following Jesus is going up. If you haven't noticed, becoming, being a follower of Jesus is trending down in popularity. Our culture is becoming increasingly anti-Jesus, anti-God, anti-Bible, anti-Christ. We stand in the midst of a culture right now that's rapidly redefining good and evil. We stand in the midst of a culture that's rapidly redefining right and wrong, truth and error. And as followers of Jesus who stand for a fixed truth, a true truth with a capital T that doesn't change, in the midst of a culture where truth is no longer even believed to be a reality, I have my truth, you have your truth, but there is no truth with a capital T. We stand as followers of Jesus against the tide. And the cost of following Jesus is going up. And as we stand for what is right and true and good with love and courage, in the midst of a culture that is increasingly losing its ability to agree to disagree, we live in the midst of a culture today that if you don't agree with me, then you are evil and I have the right to do whatever is, whatever is required to eradicate you from society. You know, this week, maybe last week, this week or last week, I read an article. It was an NBC article. It was just one of my apps. It was a federal judge that was going through the, you know, vetting process. And she was accused of being uh, part of a hate group. And the reason she was part of this so-called hate group was the name of the group, if I remember it, was Alliance Defending Freedom. And if this is the right group, if I got the article right, it's a group that I support financially. It's a group that is not a hate group. It just stands for religious rights and freedom. It's fighting important uh, court cases. But it's been labeled by the LGBTQ community as a hate group. Why? There's no hate in it. It just disagree. But what's happening in our culture today as we stand with Jesus, we're increasingly going to have more enemies than we've ever had before. And so the question is, how will we respond to these new enemies? Will we respond with fire fighting fire? Will we fight hate with hate? Will we return evil for evil? Will it be an eye for an eye 
in Jesus' name? Or will we follow the path of Jesus? And will we love our enemies? Will we seek their highest good? Will we pray for those who persecute us? Will we do them good and not harm? You know, today we started the day with a story about this metropolitan city where tensions have been rising for some time, but no one saw what would happen that day. It would change the rest of their life. A spark that would burst into flame, threaten to burn down all their lives. And this is a true story. It's a story that comes from the life of the early church in the book of Acts. A lot of you don't know this, but or a lot of people don't know this. You may know this. But in the, when the early church started in Jerusalem, in general, it's a very popular movie at first. The religious leaders were against it. And they would persecute the religious leaders of the Jesus movement. But in general, we're told that the People in general found these new Christians and Jesus followers in high favor. But as time went on, they began to realize that this new faith was significantly different than the old faith, and tensions began to rise. And this powder keg exploded with a key event in Acts chapter 7 with the arrest of incredible spokesman for the new Jesus movement, a man named Stephen. And he was put on trial before the same religious court that had condemned Jesus shortly before. And there were similar results. And he challenged them, and they couldn't handle this. And all of a sudden, all hell broke loose. And it went from becoming a courtroom to a lynch mob. And we're told that that they were so angry, these opponents, that they're like gnashing their teeth. They're just furious. And this horrible scene breaks out, and they they take Steve, and they drag him through the streets of the city of Jerusalem, and they drag him out to stone him, which as far as we know was illegal. They didn't even have a legal right to do this under Rome. But they took him out, and just in the heat of the moment, they stoned him. And I want you to picture that scene, false accusation, injustice, nothing right about this, the hatred, the venom that's coming, And as Stephen is there, I want you to picture someone being stoned and how painful this is to die like that. As as people are taking careful aim at your head with rocks and they're cheering every time a rock finds its place and your bones are starting to break and your skin, you're starting to bleed and you're starting to get dizzy from the hits in the head. And it's in this scene as he's being attacked and he's being executed with a lynch mob mentality, he falls to his knees. He's no longer strong enough to stand up. And as he falls to his knees, he looks up and Jesus appears to him, standing up to welcome him. And he says he saw the glory of God. It was like an Old Testament vision, the glory of God. And he sees Jesus. And maybe that's what inspired him But in that moment, I want you to see what he said there in your note sheet. It says in Acts chapter 7, verse 60, he fell to his knees and he cried out, Lord, in other words, Lord Jesus, do not hold 
this sin against them. Let me ask you, who does that sound like? Jesus. That sounds like a message translation of, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Do you see what's happened? The movement of Jesus is so fresh. It's so brand new. We're probably within the first six months or two years. And the early church understood what it was to be a follower of Jesus. It was to respond to your enemies like Jesus responded to his enemies. And so as he falls, he says, God, this one's on me. Let this one be on me. They get a pass for this one. Are you kidding me? The hatred, the venom, the injustice. And he says, don't hold this one against them. This one's on me. Put it on me. See, the student has become like the teacher. The disciple has become like the father in the heavens. And the question is, as we wrap up this series today, the question is, will we listen and follow? We've spent 10 weeks on this. We've seen Jesus' vision for our lives. We've seen his priorities. We love God and we love people, top two. We've talked about how that happens. We've talked about authenticity, how it starts with authenticity, radical honesty. We've seen, we've talked about character and God's vision that we'd be transformed, that the core character of the creator. So we have the capacity to love others well. We've talked about true love and what it is and what it isn't, seeking someone's highest good. We've talked about learning to listen. We've talked about sharing our story. We've talked about moving towards conflict a new way. We've talked about forgiving and letting go of the past. We've talked about living in freedom and giving freedom. And today we come to the final challenge at the top of the mountain, to love others while even your enemies. The question is, will we be a church that listens and likes? Or will we be a church that listens and follows and takes the high road? Amen? Let's pray. Father, as we come before you as a church, as we wrap up this series, we reflect back the 10 weeks, all we've learned, all you've done, those moments in our time alone with you where lights have gone on, insights have come, those difficult conversations, those honest conversations, those moments in life group where new insight has happened, those moments of surrender, one-on-one time we've said yes to you in new ways, as we come to the end and we reflect on this final challenge, that your vision for us is bigger. You didn't die for us so we could stay broken. You died for us so we could be healed, to become like our creator, that we would love like you. You didn't love us as your enemies so we can hate ours. You loved us while we were as our, your enemies so that we could come to a place where we would love ours. Father, we've reflected time and time again on your extravagant love for us. 
And you've called us now to live a life of extravagant love. We're the first to admit we're the first graders, we're the kindergartners, we're the preschoolers. But Jesus, we want to take you seriously. We don't want to listen and like, we want to listen and follow. And so as we come today to worship, to bring our lives, to bring our gifts, our offerings, we pray you'd meet us now as we celebrate your extravagant love and we embrace your call to live a life of extravagant love. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.